0: Hey, everyone. Uh, We'll be reading from uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And when he heard of him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. The strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, and he went and had him beheaded in the prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb.
1: Thanks, Luis, and shame on the rest of you. No, appreciate you, brother. Um, well, my name's Cameron. I am one of the pastors here. Um, I just want to take a second to, to, I guess, brag on everybody, but I'm going to just brag on and celebrate Sam who led us in worship for a second. You know, as a small church, um, most of the stuff that gets done around here is done by all of you, as vo- by volunteers. Um, you know, Josh and myself are full-time on staff. Darren is very part-time, about 10 hours a week, and that's, that's the staff team. And uh, we're grateful that the three of us, you know, can uh, be paid to have our schedules freed up to do what we do for the church. But it's no exaggeration to say the, the bulk of things that happen around here in terms of hours spent are done by people who are not paid to do them um, in all the ministries. Uh, and uh, worship is no exception to that. It's, I, I don't know if we all recognize and, like, thank the Lord for what a blessing it is to have, like, the quality of musicians and worship that lead us, none of which do it for a cent of money uh, every week. All the worship leaders and other musicians just give their time practicing at home and working on things themselves. Um, And then, of course, the time spent here actually blessing us, leading us in worship. Um, And say it like this week just for COVID makes everything weird uh, and hard. People get sick and people need to get filled in and we don't just have someone on staff to jump in. Multiple of our worship leaders said, hey, I, I'm willing to step in and do it because the guy that was scheduled, actually Kevin Florence from Door of Hope Southeast was gonna lead worship for us uh, and he's, he got sick. So we should, you should pray for Kevin uh, that he recovers. And that's totally fine that he's not here because he's sick. Uh, but we, we don't just have like a staff person that can jump and say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do it. So anyway, Sam led last week and then he said, I'll lead this week. Thank you, Sam. Like." That's, that's no small, uh, sm- small service, and it's, it impacts his family, and his kid, and his wife. And so, just want to take a second to acknowledge like what a blessing it is. Um, in general, how many amazing people we have serving, but where's Sam? Where'd Sam go? There he is. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you, brother. Um, yeah, just wanted to say that. Um, Other than that, we're gonna do what we do every week. We've already started, but uh, one other thing we do every week is open up these ancient Christian scriptures together to hear the words of God, and then someone like me or maybe one of you one of these days uh, is gonna try to explain and apply them, hopefully empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so, uh, to do so well, and then we're gonna try to hear our God to know him more fully, to follow after him more closely as a result of hearing his word. In case you forgot why it is we do this, this thing we do every week. And we believe, I hope you believe, that, that along with, with the ancient writers of these biblical books, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. Um, so whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, we believe God breathed, he inspired these words on these pages. Um, but you got to pick something. So we've chosen to work through the gospel according to Mark for a long time, uh, to take it story by story, to just kind of get weekly, just a close look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, especially in these early days of our church, we thought this was, there, there was no better foundation to build our church on than the stories of the life and teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but there's weird stuff in the Bible, right? there's weird stuff. And uh, <laughs> like, it, like you don't have to read much of it. And even if you're just sticking to the Gospels, which we're not going to just stick to the Gospels, we haven't just stuck to the Gospels, but even if you did, you're gonna get weird stuff. Um, and, and you know, much of it strikes us as weird, uh, because it, one reason is because we are so deeply immersed in our modern or postmodern Western American urban culture and values. And the Bible presents a worldview, uh, and an ethical and moral vision for life and a way to be saved, a path to salvation that's in many places just utterly at odds with how we are conditioned every day to think and to feel and to process life. Um, that's not the only reason the Bible strikes us as weird. At other times it strikes us as weird because it presents these intense depictions of miracles and these other divine interventions in the world as the story of redemption moves forward that sound alien to us, far-fetched. Did that really happen? Can that even happen? Are questions you probably ask as you read the Bible. And then at other times, the Bible strikes us as weird because it unflinchingly presents the ugliness of sin and evil in ways that feel inappropriate for what we think the Bible is supposed to be. You read a story and you go, why is that in the Bible? That is grotesque, that is ugly, that is strange. Uh, That's not what I thought, it's not the kind of story I thought the Bible was supposed to include. Maybe for some of us today's story is one of those stories. As we just heard it read, this is one of those weird ones. This is one of those weird ones. Whether it hit you that way or not, I I think that it is. and there are possibly ways we could elaborate on this passage and preach it that would make it inappropriate for young kids. I don't plan to do that. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it's, it's a difficult one. It's a sad one, it's a hard one. It's kind of a gross one when you read it. Um, but nonetheless, this passage, it kind of also serves as like a literary break or, or an interlude in Mark's narrative. So previously, we've been seeing teachings of Jesus and healing stories and miracles, and then stories of Jesus' rejection in Nazareth and the sending out of the 12 that Sean uh, so beautifully preached for us last week uh, to minister in his name. And then this story just kind of po- pushes pause on the Jesus story that's been building, and we get this story here to learn what happened to John the Baptist. Um, And if you were here, if you've read the Gospel of Mark before, if you were here for the early weeks through this book, remember John the Baptist kind of kicked the book off. He was this wild man prophet uh, out by the Jordan River. He was baptizing. He was calling Israel to repent of its sin, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, who was going to be Jesus. And he had this kind of weird, like enigmatic ministry. He was in the tradition of the prophets of old, and uh, he paved the way for, for Jesus. In fact, he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, and uh, that baptism marked kind of the official start to Jesus' public ministry as, as a roughly 30-year-old man. So John was important, and we haven't heard about John since the beginning of the book. And now we get this story uh, about what happened to John. Whatever happened, hey, whatever happened to that John guy? That's what Mark's doing for us here. Um, and it might uh, make, not make sense why we take such a digression, but I, I trust that it will um, in the end. So let's look at it. First few verses, uh, verses 14 through 16, 15. It says, King Herod heard of it, heard of Jesus' ministry, Jesus sending out the disciples. This is, you can, everything that's kind of been happening in Mark, you can hear, read back into this. K- King Herod heard of it, all the Jesus stuff. For Jesus' name had become known. And that, even though Jesus is trying to keep things secret, relatively, uh, the, na- the word's getting out, it's continuing to get out. And and, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. And we can just note there, wait a second. What do you mean John the Baptist is dead? Last time we saw, he was like preaching and baptizing and ministering. Uh, He had disciples that were kind of on the scene. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Interesting. Okay. Uh, We'll come back to that. It says, that's why the miraculous powers are at work in, in Jesus. Others said Jesus is Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So King Herod is, the, is one of the main characters in this story. And who was this? Well, there's, there's no less than like four Herods in the Bible, in the New Testament. So when you read about Herod, usually you have to do a little bit of research to figure out which one is, are we referring to here. This is Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great's the Herod from like the birth of Jesus narrative, the one who had all the babies killed. Really evil guy. Uh, This is one of his sons. And he held the title, this Herod held the title, Herod Antipas, the title of Tetrarch over Galilee, where Jesus was from as well as the region of Perea. And Tetrarch means ruler of one-fourth part. So ruler of a fourth. And that's because after Herod the Great died, he divided his whole kingdom up into four parts and appointed four rulers, and Herod Antipas was one of those rulers over a fourth of the kingdom. So uh, it's important to note, though, that this Herod, Herod Antipas, he always craved the title of king, and he never got it. Uh, Mark calls him king here, but the other gospel writers refer to him as the Tetrarch. but this, 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 this Herod, he always wanted that title of king. He wanted more and more power, he wanted more and more authority. And it, historical side note, that craving ultimately led him to be banished from the Roman Empire by the Roman emperor in AD 39, because he kept wanting more and more and more, and finally the emperor was like, get this guy out of here, he's a pest. So his craving for that title of king ultimately came back to end his political career. So when Mark uses the title king here, for Herod Antipas, I mean, in one sense it's, it's, you know, king doesn't have to be a precise term. Yes, he's the ruler over this region, but it's possible that Mark is using it in kind of an ironic or a mocking way. And, and I think that's what's going on and we'll explain more as we keep going. So this is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, tetrarch over Galilee, Jesus's home region. But the question that's being asked here is a question that continues to come up throughout this gospel, which is the question of who is this Jesus? That's, they're all providing different answers here, and different answers have been provided throughout the book. Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he this enigmatic prophet who was uh, preaching repentance? Herod, Herod suggests that that's who he is. We'll see that here in a second. Um, Herod suggests that he's John the Baptist. Um, back to haunt him, perhaps. From the dead. Um, some think he's Elijah, one of the great, powerful, persecuted prophets of the Old Testament, forerunner to the Messiah. Maybe he's just a new prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Uh, what do you think, everybody? And, and Mark is subtly teeing all of us up as we've been reading the stories about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He's, he's wanting us to put that question to ourselves as well. So I put it to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? have you read these stories and thought to yourself oh that's a neat nice guy seems cool seems like an interesting teacher to follow have you read these stories and thought i don't like jesus i'm not convinced that what he has to say is worth my time or my energy or the cost that it would take to follow him maybe you think he's a liar maybe you think he's a lunatic maybe you think he's a curiosity Maybe you think he's a prophet, you know, good, good teacher, like one of the ones of old. Or maybe you've started to think, maybe you made a decision a long time ago, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the, the character for whom the whole history of God's activity in the world was pointing toward and fulfilled in. I can't answer that for you. But the question is put to you right now, who do you, you no, one, no one else can answer it for you. Your mom can't answer it for you, your dad can't, your kids can't, your spouse can't, your best friend can't, your teacher can't, I can't. Who do you say that Jesus is? We'll leave that there. So, Herod, Herod believed that John, oh, we should have verse 16 up there. We missed it, my bad. Verse 16, when Herod heard of all this, he said, he, uh, it is John whom, I've been, whom I beheaded who's been raised. So once again, Herod thinks this is, Jesus is probably John the Baptist come back to haunt him from the dead. It's kind of weird. Good Halloween sermon we could have here. <laughs> so we keep reading. Oh, there it is. I got all my slides mixed up. Verse 16, keep reading. Verse 17, for it was Herod... Here we go. So we get the story here. What do you mean John's been beheaded? Here we go. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted, him, wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard John gladly. So, we get some story here. We kind of get like a like a flashback, if you will, to the, the story of what's going on. Uh, we're, we're, we're leaving the present tense of Mark with the ministry of Jesus going forward. Now we get this flashback story to this episode with What happened to John the Baptist? And um, we immediately get to see that there's all this family drama, and I'm not going to get into all of it. It's complicated, but there were these marriages for political advantage and disadvantage and these grudges that were being built. And the short of it is Herod Antipas had taken the wife of his half-brother for himself. She had come into his family. She had become one of his many wives and John was speaking out against it. Why did Herodias, this woman, hate John so much? It's just standard prophet stuff. One of the main functions of the prophets of Israel throughout its history was to challenge the leaders and the nation itself when they had left obedience to God, when they left faithfulness to God, when they left kind of familiarity and intimacy with God. Prophet, they were usually these weird figures doing weird things that looked weird, that acted weird, Uh, they would come out onto the scene and they would be God's mouthpiece to call Israel back. And it's usually because the priests were corrupt, the kings were corrupt, maybe some formalized prophets were corrupt, so God would raise up this wild figure to come and speak the truth and call them back to repentance. And that's what John was doing here. John was calling this tetrarch, this tetrarch Herod, to uphold the law that he's supposed to represent. He's calling, he's challenging this so-called king's clear violation of the Mosaic law. God had decreed as clear as day in Leviticus that a man could not take his brother's wife. And John was unafraid to call him out on this, to call Israel's king to account. And so, uh, finally we get this, Herod is kind of perplexed and interested, like, oh, what's up with this guy? He didn't seem threatened by John. Uh, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him dead. Who knows knows why their two reactions diverged? Who's to say? But they did nonetheless. She wanted him dead. And I just want to take, take a second here to talk about this dynamic of this prophet of God speaking out against corrupt leadership. Because I know some of us read this story about John, and we just want to stand up, and we want to clap, and you go, yes, yes, John, you're speaking the truth to power. You're being unafraid to challenge the politicians. You're sticking your neck out on the line, you know, for the sake of, of what's right and good and true. But I want to just kind of, I want to parse this out a little bit. I think, first of all, we do really well to acknowledge the situational difference here. Ancient Israel was a theocratic society where its rulers were supposed to rule in accord with what God had revealed. That's one difference. The second difference is that the system of government was a far cry from something like the federal republic that we have, or really anything that whiffs of democracy. There was no like voice of the people in these ancient systems. Um, and for those reasons, because we don't see a political environment anything like the one that we currently live in in 2021 in the United States of America, we have to acknowledge what a lot of Christians don't acknowledge, which is that the Bible gives us no clear, direct teaching on how Christians ought to operate in a political system like the one we have. Did you know that? And I think that should give us a lot of grace for one another, okay? Some of us in this room, I know because I talked to you, some of us are vehemently opposed to Christians even voting in the system that we have because you think it's to be complicit with the injustices that are perpetuated by our government. I think that's legitimate. Others of us think we ought to use every ounce of our political energy and, and our vote and whatever else in our email accounts to pester lawmakers to actually get just things to be done uh, in our world. I think that's legitimate. I'm not saying they're both right. Probably, I mean, one of those things is probably right. If we could sit Jesus down and say, Jesus, what are we supposed to do? Tell us how to be good American Christian citizens. I think there would be an answer to that. But I'm just saying, biblically, I think cases can be made for multiple positions along the spectrum. Have grace for one another on this. Have grace for one another on this. That said, that said, whatever you do about, say, voting, for example, I think Christians have a responsibility to speak truth to challenge injustice, and to lovingly work for the good of all of our neighbors, even if there are a number of legitimate positions to take on how to go about those things. Hear me very clearly on that. We do have that responsibility. My challenge to all of us, in light of this, in light of this, is to fight hard. Fight as hard as you can against succumbing to political ideology and to fight as hard as you can to let King Jesus and his kingdom increasingly set the definitions, your definitions, of the good, the beautiful, the just, and the true, and to set, let him set our agenda for the issues we care about. I hope we can, if you're a disciple I hope you can agree to that. Like, there is no definition of the just or the good apart from what the king declares. And, and however you choose to engage in the political system, to be consistent, to be consistent in applying the same loudness to every cause that merits it. Hear me, whether that is in step with the values of whatever, whatever political tastemakers you're drawn into or not. Hear that? If you think you need to stand up and fight for justice, may you do it in ways that tick off the people to your left and the people to your right if it's what Jesus is asking for, okay? That's what we're called to do, friends. I'm not saying I figured out how to do that. Please don't hear this as like the righteous one who's figured this out at all. Please don't hear that. But I know that's my call, and I know that's your call as well. I promise you that if we can be consistent in pursuing the values of Jesus however we choose to engage politically and we're not beholden to the to the tastemakers of our day that you will find yourself politically homeless on a lot of issues because what Jesus calls us to is more complicated than our political binary sets us up to believe it just is you will feel politically homeless in the big picture but you know what you will feel way and you will feel and you will be Way more faithful to Jesus on many issues. That's where he wants us. And here, John is modeling it for us. In his context, in his day, he is speaking truth. And it's going to cost him his life. It did cost him his life. But I think that's, a, I think that's an important reminder for us today. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And here's where it gets really ugly. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So, it's a gross scene. And I'm not going to spend too much time uh, describing it in detail, but what you've got here is a king with all these men, all these ruling, powerful men gathered for his birthday and his Wife's daughter comes in and dances. We assume this is a sensual dance. We can assume this is a sexual dance. And in the heat of this moment, you know, lust, lust makes people do stupid things. It makes people do incredibly stupid things. It, it turns over, it turns off our kind of logical reasoning faculties. It makes us do dumb things and we have this king in the throes of sexual desire toward his own stepdaughter, making these wild promises. Why did he need to, he didn't need to do this regardless. Whatever you wish, I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. He doesn't even have the authority to give away half of the kingdom. He's kind of a puppet ruler, this, he's, just, he's just like, the, the image is just of him just totally lost in this moment of sensuality and sexuality. It's perverse. It's ugly. It should make your stomach churn a little bit. So, the girl, she goes, and she, she consults with her mom, Herodias. She says, for what should I ask? Look, I've got, I've got the king right where I want him. And this, mother, this mother's not concerned but protecting her daughter's dignity or outraged that the situation is going on or whatever, she just immediately sees her opportunity. She says, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl comes back in immediately with haste to the king, and she asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And she adds a little wrinkle here on a platter on a platter. This is like a royal feast. Lots of dishes would be brought out. May John the Baptist's head be one of, the, one of the many dishes that we're feasting on. And we see here in verse 26, it's not just lust that was leading this king. It's also his pride. It's his ego. Because 26 says the king was sorry. We saw that he, he had some and respect for John. He had some measure <laughs> of interest and respect for John. And he's sorry. He immediately is like, in the words of the, the eternal words of Joe Bluth, "I've made a huge mistake." But, so he knows what, he knows. the right thing to do here. I'm exceedingly sorry. This is a mistake. What have I gotten myself into? But because of his oaths, because of these promises, he's trying to be the big man, making the big declaration. Oh, I'll give you whatever you want. And because of his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Lust and pride are powerful, dangerous motivators for us all. Let's not think we're above this kind of thing. And so, this is the point where I would highlight. I would highlight this king, a king led by his lusts, and led by his pride, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark is trying to, even using the word king, even maybe in this mocking or ironic sense, we're meant to suddenly see here a comparison. Here's one kind of king. Here's one kind of king led by his, what's best for him, what he desires, like the, the, just the whims of his, of whatever he wants to do. And the whole time throughout this gospel of Mark, we've been hearing about another king. King Jesus, King Jesus, the one who's not led by lust or by his own pride, but the one who says, if you want to be greatest in my kingdom, you become a servant of all. He's the one who doesn't amass power and influence for himself, though he's the one who is truly powerful, the one who has the right to be truly influential, but he serves. He's not the one who lords his power over others, to protect his own ego, he's the one who willingly lays down his life for his friends. He dies in the place of his subjects. John the Bapt- or <laughs> Herod Antipas will lay down the life of the holy man of God, John the Baptist, to appease his ego. And I think we're just supposed to take note of this. There is a way and a pattern that political and economic and whatever kind of power works in our world. And no one is immune to it. We're all tempted by it. I'm tempted by it. Wherever you hold power, you will be tempted by it. And it's no surprise that the people who are often the most powerful in our world end up doing the most heinous and disturbing things. That's just the way of the world except in the kingdom of God, except in the kingdom of God, where Jesus is at the rule. He is the one who has and does and will forever break this pattern. He becomes the lamb. He is the lamb of God laid down sacrificially of his own will to save and rescue his people who could not save themselves. You see what Mark's doing here? Why this weird story about this king when he's kind of even using the word king as a little bit of a fumble? He wants us to see, you've read about Jesus now. Who do you say that he is? Oh yeah, and how's any other king working out for you? How is any other king working out for you? So the story continues. Verse 27. And immediately... The king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother and when his disciples heard of it they came and they took his body and they laid it in the tomb and then verse 30 And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think, you know, the verses and chapters are not, um, they're not uh, original to the New Testament or the old. That was added later in church history. Thankfully, that's great. We can just say a number and everyone knows where to turn. Um, But you might read that verse 30. I don't have it up there. Uh, Because many of us would think, well, why is verse 30 part of this same chapter? Wouldn't that be a natural break when we return to Jesus? But this is just another one of those times Mark does this like sandwich technique. So we had the story of Jesus sending out the 12. That was last week we talked about. And then we get this flashback to what happened to John the Baptist? Why did he die? Why did Herod have him killed? And then it ends the story once again with that story of Jesus and the 12. They come back and they tell Jesus what had happened. I think this story is also meant to tell us, it's it's a little insertion here to remind us of a really key important part of being a disciple of Jesus. It's that even though in the story of, of Mark's gospel, it's like momentum, yeah, sure, Jesus has pushback, but he's defeating demons and he's showing his wisdom against these corrupt religious rulers and he's healing the sick. He raised a girl from the dead, this is amazing. Now he's got the 12, they're going out and they're doing the same amazing things in the power of Jesus, this is so cool you could get a triumphalist mindset. And Mark gives us this story, this reminder that that even though things look good right now, in this world, faithfulness to Jesus will entail suffering. It will entail suffering and death will come for some. Death will come for all of us through some means or another, right, of course. Death for following Jesus, will come to some. And so this story is inserted here. John the Baptist, remember he was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the one who was out preaching in preparation for Jesus. He was baptizing and then Jesus comes, he baptizes Jesus, he's the forerunner. He's also the forerunner in death. He's also the forerunner in death to Jesus. And this language is almost exactly how Mark is going to put this at the end in chapter 16 of the the narrative of the disciples coming and taking his body and laying it in the tomb. Mark wants us to see the connection. Though things seem like they're good, everything's great, Jesus knows and Mark is telling us, he's giving us a sneak peek. You all know. You've been around church at least a bit. Jesus' story doesn't end at this stage in triumphalism. He's he's crucified publicly, hanging naked on a cross as an enemy of the Roman state. The disciples scatter. They flee. They're horrified. They're embarrassed. They probably think everything they believed was a lie. Later in life, tradition tells us all of the disciples, they're going to face martyrs' deaths. They're gonna be killed for their faithfulness to Jesus and proclaiming him as the one true king. So this story reminds us in this in the story, oh wow, the disciples are going out, they're having this, this amazing stuff is happening. Oh yeah, and John the Baptist was beheaded for speaking the truth. Let this be a reminder to us. Let this be a reminder to us. So that's kind of a bummer, right? Of course the story doesn't end there. Of course the story doesn't end there. John was killed but you know what? John was going John was going to see his savior again. Jesus was killed but you know what? 3 days later he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Death could not hold Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. He appeared bodily with holes in his flesh. He appeared to the disciples. He let them touch the wounds. He said, it's really me. It's really me. And Jesus raised. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits today. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He didn't vanish off into some, he's sitting at the right hand of the father in grace, giving more time for more to come to see who he is, experience his salvation, but a day is coming when he will return and it will be bad news for some, but for those who have bent the knee to the king, it will be the greatest day in human history because it's the final end to every ounce of sin, injustice, death, evil, abuse political corruption, abuse of power, you name it, you fill in the blank. Jesus says, here's the line, it's over, there will be no more. And the rest of human history will be uh, (laughs) life on a new heavens and a new earth where all those things are distant memories where God has wiped every tear from the eye of every one of his people. And C.S. Lewis, as C.S. Lewis said it uh, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, Um, he says, this whole story, this whole story of human tragedy and suffering and wars and violence and COVID-19, whatever. This was but the introductory, I don't have the quote, but the introduction to the real story that's just beginning. We have an eternity future in God's good world with the good king sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning that we can trust And you know how we can trust him? He died for you. He laid down everything because of his great love for you. That's who Jesus was, that's who Jesus is, that's who Jesus will be. So friends, this is another reminder. There is suffering in this world. Um, Somehow we have to hold these two things in tension. Life will not be all rosy for all of us. I hope none of us have to suffer for the name of Jesus, but I guarantee that some of us will. Maybe all of us will. Maybe all of us will. So we have to be clear-eyed about that. But you know what? It's just the beginning of the introduction of the first page of this story. That gets beautiful. That gets perfect. How do we know? Jesus walked out of that tomb. If he did, you will too. Amen? Let's pray.